Hello, and welcome to MTC Audio Lab, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. MTC Audio Lab is theatre for your ears, bringing great dramatic texts to life with some of your favourite stage actors. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Bunwarung, the first peoples of country on which these recordings took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. In this second series of MTC Audio Lab, you'll hear a reading of Henry James's enduring Gothic novella, The Turn of the Screw, directed by MTC Associate Artistic Director, Sarah Goods. Turn of the Screw by Henry James. The story had held us round the fire sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as on Christmas Eve in an old house a strange tale should essentially be, I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. The case was that of an apparition in just such an old house as had gathered us for the occasion. An appearance of a dreadful kind to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in the terror of it. Waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself the same sight that had shaken him. It was this observation that drew from Douglas, not immediately, but later in the evening, a reply that had the interesting consequence to which I call attention. Somebody else told a story not particularly effective, which I saw he was not following. This I took for a sign that he had himself something to produce, and that we should only have to wait. We waited, in fact till two nights later. But that same evening, before we scattered, he brought out what was in his mind. I quite agree. In regard to Griffin's ghost, that it's appearing first to the little boy, it's so tender an age adds a particular touch. But it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? We say, of course... Somebody exclaimed. ...that they give two turns. Also, that we want to hear about them. I can see Douglas there before the fire, to which he had got up to present his back, looking down with his hands in his pockets. Nobody but me, till now, has ever heard. It's too horrible. Nothing at all that I know touches it. For sheer terror, I remember asking. He seemed to say it was not so simple as that, to be really at a loss how to qualify it. He passed his hand over his eyes, 
made a little wincing grimace for dreadful dreadfulness. Oh, how delicious. He looked at me, but as if instead of me, he saw what he spoke of. For general uncanny ugliness and horror and pain. Well then, just sit right down and begin. He turned to the fire, gave a kick to a log, watched it an instant. Then, as he faced us again... I can't begin. I shall have to send to town. The story's written. It's in a locked drawer. It has not been out for years. I could write to my man and enclose the key. He could send down the packet as he finds it. It was to me in particular that he appeared to propound this. Appeared almost to appeal for aid, not to hesitate. He had broken a thickness of ice. The formation of many a winter. Had had his reasons for a long silence. The others resented postponement, but it was just his scruples that charmed me. I adjured him to write by the first post and to agree with us for an early hearing. Then I asked him if the experience in question had been his own. To this, his answer was prompt. Oh, thank God, no. And is the record yours? You took the thing down? Nothing but the impression. I took that here. He tapped his heart. No, I've never lost it. Then your manuscript... Is an old, faded ink and in the most beautiful hand. A woman's. She's been dead these twenty years. She sent me the pages in question before she died. They were all listening now. She was a most charming person. But she was ten years older than I. She was my sister's governess. She was the most agreeable woman I've ever known in her position. She would have been worthy of any whatever. It was long ago, and this episode was long before. I was at Trinity and I found her at home on my coming down the second summer. I was much there that year. It was a beautiful one, and we had, in her off hours, some strolls and talks in the garden, talks in which she struck me as awfully clever and nice. Oh, yes, don't grin. I liked her extremely, and I'm glad to this day that she liked me too. If she hadn't, she wouldn't have told me. She'd never told anyone. It wasn't simply that she said so, but that I knew she hadn't. I was sure. I could see. You'll easily judge why when you hear. Because the thing had been such a scare. He continued to fix me. You'll easily judge. You will. I fixed him too. I see. She was in love. You are acute. Yes, she was in love. That is, she had been. That came out. She couldn't tell her story without its coming out. I saw it, and she saw I saw it, but neither of us spoke of it. I remember the time and the place. The corner of the lawn, the shade of the great beaches in the long, hot summer afternoon. It wasn't a scene for a shudder, but... He quitted the fire and dropped back into his chair. 
you'll receive the packet Thursday morning. Probably not till the second post. Well, then, after dinner. You'll all meet me here? Who was she in love with? The story will tell. Oh, I can't wait for the story. Yes. Tomorrow. Now I must go to bed. Good night. And quickly catching up a candlestick, he left us, slightly bewildered. From our end of the great brown hall, we heard his step on the stair. Well, if I don't know who she was in love with, I know who he was. She was ten years older. Raison de plus at that age. But it's rather nice forty years with this outbreak at last. The outbreak will make a tremendous occasion of Thursday night. Oh, it will, yes. <laughs> we lost all attention for everything else. We hand shook and candle stuck and went to bed. I knew the next day that a letter containing the key had by the first post gone off to his London apartments, so we quite left him alone until after dinner. We had it from him again before the fire in the hall, as we had had our mild wonders of the previous night. It appeared that the narrative he had promised to read us really required a few words of prologue. The first of these touches conveyed that the written statement took up the tale at a point after it had in a manner begun. The fact to be in possession of was therefore that his old friend, the youngest of several daughters of a poor country parson, had, at the age of twenty, on taking up service for the first time in the schoolroom, come up to London, in trepidation, to answer in person an advertisement that had already placed her in brief correspondence with the advertiser. This person proved, on her presenting herself for judgment at a house in Harley Street, that impressed her as vast and imposing. This prospective patron proved a gentleman, a bachelor in the prime of life, such a figure as had never risen save in a dream or an old novel before a fluttered, anxious girl out of a Hampshire vicarage. One could easily fix his type. It never happily dies out. He was handsome and bold and pleasant, offhand and gay and kind. He struck her inevitably as gallant and splendid. But what took her most of all, and gave her the courage she afterwards showed, was that he put the whole thing to her as a kind of favour, an obligation he should gratefully incur. She conceived him as rich, but as fearfully extravagant, saw him all in a glow of high fashion, of good looks, of expensive habits, of charming ways with women. He had, for his own town residence, a big house filled with the spoils of travel and the trophies of the chase. But it was to his country home, an old family place in Essex, that he wished her immediately to proceed. He had been left, by the death of their parents in India, guardian to a small nephew and a small niece, children of a younger, a military brother, whom he had lost two years before. These children were, by the strangest of chances for a man in his position, a lone man without the right sort of experience or a grain of patience, very heavily on his hands. It had all been a great worry, and 
on his own part, doubtless, a series of blunders. But he immensely pitied the poor chicks, and had done all he could, had in particular sent them down to his other house, the proper place for them being, of course, in the country, and kept them there from the first, with the best people he could find to look after them, parting even with his own servants to wait on them, and going down himself whenever he might to see how they were doing. The awkward thing was that they had practically no other relations, and that his own affairs took up all his time. He had put them in the possession of Bly, which was healthy and secure, and had placed at the head of their little establishment, but below stairs only, an excellent woman, Mrs. Gross, whom he was sure his visitor would like, and who had formerly been maid to his mother. She was now housekeeper, and was also acting for the time as superintendent to the little girl, of whom, without children of her own, she was, by good luck, extremely fond. There were plenty of people to help, but of course the young lady who should go down as governess would be in supreme authority. She would also have, in holidays, to look after the small boy who had been for a term at school. Young as he was to be sent, but what else could be done? And who, as the holidays were about to begin, would be back from one day to the other? There had been, for the two children, at first, a young lady, whom they had had the misfortune to lose. She had done for them quite beautifully. She was a most respectable person, till her death the great awkwardness of which had precisely left no alternative but the school for little miles. Mrs. Gross, since then, in the way of manners and things, had done as she could for Flora, and there were, further, a cook, a housemaid, a dairywoman, an old pony, an old groom, and an old gardener, all likewise thoroughly respectable. So far had Douglas presented his picture when someone put a question. And what did the former governess die of? Of so much respectability? That will come out. I should have wished to learn if the office brought with it necessary danger to life. She did wish to learn, and she did learn. You shall hear later what she learned. Meanwhile, of course, the prospect struck her as slightly grim. She was young untried, nervous. It was a vision of serious duties and little company, of really great loneliness. She hesitated, took a couple of days to consult and consider, but the salary offered much exceeded her modest measure, and on a second interview she faced the music. She engaged. And Douglas, with this, made a pause, that for the benefit of the company, moved me to throw in the moral of which was, of course, the seduction exercised by the splendid young man. She succumbed to it. He got up, and as he'd done the night before, went to the fire, gave a stir to a log with his foot, then stood a moment with his back to us. She saw him only twice. Yes, but that's just the beauty of her passion. 
a little to my surprise, on this, Douglas turned round to me. It was the beauty of it. There were others who hadn't succumbed. He told her frankly all his difficulty, that for several applicants the conditions had been prohibitive. They were, somehow, simply afraid. It sounded dull. It sounded strange. And all the more so because of his main condition. Which was? That she should never trouble him. But never. Never. Neither appeal, nor complain, nor write about anything. Only meet all questions herself. Receive all monies from his solicitor. Take the whole thing over and let him alone. She promised to do this. And she mentioned to me that when, for a moment, disburdened, delighted, he held her hand, thanking her for the sacrifice. She already felt rewarded. But was that all her reward? She never saw him again. The next night, by the corner of the hearth, in the best chair, he opened the faded red cover of a thin, old-fashioned, gilt-edged album and began to read to our hushed little circle with a fine clearness that was like a rendering to the ear of the beauty of his author's hand. Chapter One I remember the whole beginning as a succession of flights and drops, a little seesaw of the right throbs and the wrong. After rising in town to meet his appeal, I had at all events a couple of very bad days. Found myself doubtful again, felt indeed sure I had made a mistake. In this state of mind, I spent the long hours of bumping, swinging coach that carried me to the stopping place at which I was to be met by a vehicle from the house. This convenience, I was told, had been ordered, and I found, toward the close of the June afternoon, a large carriage in waiting for me. Driving at that hour on a lovely day, through a country to which the summer sweetness seemed to offer me a friendly welcome, my fortitude was revived. I suppose I had expected, or had dreaded, something so dreary that as we turned into the avenue, what greeted me was a good surprise. I remember as a most pleasant impression the broad, clear front, its open windows and fresh curtains, and the pair of maids looking out. I remember the lawn and the bright flowers, and the crunch of my wheels on the gravel, and the clustered treetops over which the rooks circled and cawed in the golden sky. The scene had a greatness that made it a different affair from my own scant home. And there immediately appeared at the door, with a little girl in her hand, a civil person who dropped me as decent a curtsy as if I had been the mistress or a distinguished visitor. I had no drop again till the next day, for I was carried triumphantly through the following hours by my introduction to the younger of my pupils. The little girl who accompanied Mrs. Gross 
appeared to me on the spot a creature so charming as to make it a great fortune to have to do with her. She was the most beautiful child I had ever seen, and I afterward wondered that my employer had not told me more of her. I slept little that night. I was too much excited, and this astonished me too, I recollect, remained with me, adding to my sense of the liberality with which I was treated. The large, impressive room, one of the best in the house, the great state bed as I almost felt it, the full-figured draperies, the long glasses in which for the first time I could see myself from head to foot, all struck me, like the extraordinary charm of my small charge, as so many things thrown in. It was thrown in as well from the first moment that I should get on with Mrs. Gross in a relation over which, on my way in the coach, I fear I had rather brooded. The only thing, indeed, that in this early outlook might have made me shrink again was the clear circumstance of her being so glad to see me. I perceived within half an hour that she was so glad, stout, simple, plain, clean, wholesome woman, as to be positively on her guard against showing it too much. I wondered even then a little why she should wish not to show it, and that, with reflection, with suspicion, might of course have made me uneasy. But it was a comfort that there could be no uneasiness in the radiant image of my little girl, the vision of whose angelic beauty had probably more than anything else to do with the restlessness that, before morning, made me several times rise and wander about my room to take in the whole picture and prospect, to watch from my open window the faint summer dawn to look at such portions of the rest of the house as I could catch, and to listen while in the fading dusk the first birds began to twitter, for the possible recurrence of a sound or two, less natural and not without but within, that I had fancied I heard. There had been a moment when I believed I recognised, faint and far, the cry of a child, there had been another when I found myself just consciously starting, as at the passage, before my door, of a light footstep. But these fancies were not marked enough not to be thrown off, and it is only in the light, or the gloom, I should rather say, of other and subsequent matters that they now come back to me. To watch, teach, form little Flora would too evidently be the making of a happy and useful life, it had been agreed between us downstairs that after this first occasion I should also care for her at night, her small white bed being already arranged in my room. What I had undertaken was the whole care of her, and she had remained just this last time with Mrs. Gross only as an effect of my inevitable strangeness and her natural timidity. In spite of this timidity, which the child herself, in the oddest way in the world, had been perfectly frank and brave about, allowing it with the deep, sweet serenity indeed of one of Raphael's holy infants to be discussed. I felt quite sure she would presently like me. It was part of what I already liked Mrs. Gross herself for, the pleasure I could see her feel in my admiration and wonder as I sat at supper with four tall candles and with my pupil brightly facing me between them over bread and milk. 
There were naturally things that in Flora's presence could pass between us, only as prodigious and gratified looks, obscure and roundabout illusions. And the little boy, does he look like her? Is he too so very remarkable? Oh, Miss Most Remarkable, if you think well of this one. And she stood there with a plate in her hand, beaming at our companion, who looked from one of us to the other with placid, heavenly eyes. Yes, if I do. You will be carried away by the little gentleman. Well, that, I think, is what I came for, to be carried away. I'm afraid, however, I'm rather easily carried away. I was carried away in London. In Harley Street? In Harley Street. Well, miss, you're not the first, and you won't be the last. Oh, I've no pretension to being the only one. My other pupil, at any rate, as I understand, comes back tomorrow? Uh, not tomorrow. Friday, miss. He arrives, as you did, by the coach, under care of the guard, and is to be met by the same carriage. I expressed that the proper as well as the pleasant and friendly thing would be, therefore, that on the arrival of the public conveyance I should be in waiting for him with his little sister, an idea in which Mrs. Gross concurred so heartily that I somehow took her manner as a kind of comforting pledge that we should on every question be quite at one. Oh, she was glad I was there. The next day... I reflected that my first duty was, by the gentlest arts I could contrive, to win the child into the sense of knowing me. I spent the day with her out of doors. I arranged with her, to her great satisfaction, that it should be she, she only, who might show me the place. She showed it step by step and room by room and secret by secret, with droll, delightful, childish talk about it, and with the result in half an hour of our becoming immense friends. Young as she was, I was struck throughout our little tour with her confidence and courage with the way in empty chambers and dull corridors, on crooked staircases that made me pause, and even on the summit of an old square tower that made me dizzy, her morning music, her disposition to tell me so many more things than she asked, rang out and led me on. I have not seen Bly since the day I left it, and I dare say that to my older and more informed eyes it would now appear sufficiently contracted. But as my little conductress, with her hair of gold and her frock of blue, danced before me round corners and pattered down passages, I had the view of a castle of romance inhabited by a rosy sprite, such a place as would somehow, for diversion of the young idea, take all colour out of storybooks and fairy tales. Wasn't it just a storybook over which I had fallen a doze and a dream? No. It was a big, ugly, antique, but convenient house, embodying a few features of a building still older, half replaced and half utilised, in which I had the fancy of our being almost as lost as a handful of passengers in a great drifting ship. Well, I was, strangely, at the helm.
Chapter 2 This came home to me when, two days later, I drove over with Flora to meet, as Mrs Gross said, the little gentleman, and all the more for an incident that, presenting itself the second evening, had deeply disconcerted me. They won't take him? They absolutely decline. At this she raised her eyes, which she had turned from me. I saw them fill with tears. What has he done? I hesitated. Then I handed her my letter, which, however, had the effect of making her, without taking it, simply put her hands behind her. She shook her head sadly. Such things are not for me, miss. My counsellor couldn't read. I winced at my mistake, and opened my letter again to repeat it to her. Then I put it back in my pocket. Is he really bad? Do the gentlemen say so? They go into no particulars. They simply express their regret that it should be impossible to keep him. That can have only one meaning. That he's an injury to the others. Master Miles? Him an injury? To his poor little innocent mates. Oh, it's too dreadful to say such cruel things. Why, he's scarce ten years old. Yes. Yes, it would be incredible. See him, miss, first. Then believe it. I felt a new impatience to see him. It was the beginning of a curiosity that, for all the next hours, was to deepen almost to pain. Mrs. Gross was aware I could judge of what she had produced in me, and she followed it up with assurance. You might as well believe it of the little lady. Bless her. Look at her. I turned and saw that Flora, whom ten minutes before I had established in the schoolroom with a sheet of white paper, a pencil, and a copy of nice round O's, now presented herself to view at the open door. She expressed in her little way an extraordinary detachment from disagreeable duties, looking to me, however, with a great childish light that seemed to offer it as a mere result of the affection she had now conceived my person, which had rendered necessary that she should follow me. I needed nothing more than this to feel the full force of Mrs. Gross's comparison, and, catching my pupil in my arms, covered her with kisses in which there was a sob of atonement. Nonetheless, the rest of the day I watched for further occasion to approach my colleague, especially as toward evening. I began to fancy she rather sought to avoid me. I overtook her, I remember, on the staircase. We went down together, and at the bottom I detained her, holding her there with a hand on her arm. I take what you said to me at noon as a declaration that... You've never known him to be bad. Oh, never known him. I don't pretend that. Then you have known him? Yes, indeed, miss, thank God. You mean that a boy who never is... Is no boy for me. You like them with the spirit to be naughty. So do I. But not to the degree to contaminate. To contaminate? To corrupt. Oh, are you afraid he'll corrupt you? She put the question with such a fine, bold humour that, with a laugh, a little silly doubtless, to match her own, I gave way for the time to the apprehension of ridicule. But the next day, as the hour for my drive approached, 
I cropped up in another place. What was the lady who was here before? The last governess. She was also young and pretty, almost as young and almost as pretty, miss, even as you. Ah, then I hope her youth and her beauty helped her. It seems... He seems to like us young and pretty. Oh, he did. It was the way he liked everyone. I mean, that's his way, the master's. But of whom did you speak first? Why, of him. Of the master? Of who else? Did she see anything in the boy? That wasn't right. She never told me. Was she careful? Particular? About some things, yes. But not about all? Well, miss, she's gone. I won't tell tales. I quite understand your feeling. Did she die here? No. She went off. I don't know what there was in this brevity of Mrs. Grocer's that struck me as ambiguous. Went off to die? Mrs. Gross looked straight out of the window. She was taken ill, you mean, and went home? She was not taken ill, so far as appeared in this house. She left it at the end of the year to go home, as she said, for a short holiday, to which the time she had put in had certainly given her a right. But our young lady never came back, and at the very moment I was expecting her, I heard from the master that she was dead. But of what? He never told me. But please, miss, I must get to my work. Chapter 3 I was a little late on the scene of Miles's arrival, and I felt, as he stood wistfully looking out for me before the door of the inn at which the coach had put him down, that I had seen him on the instant, without and within, in the great glow of freshness, the same positive fragrance of purity in which I had, from the first moment, seen his little sister. He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Gross had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. What I then and there took him to my heart for was something divine that I have never found to the same degree in any child. His indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love. It would have been impossible to carry a bad name with the greatest sweetness of innocence, and by the time I had got back to Bly with him, I remained merely bewildered, so far, that is, as I was not outraged by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room in a drawer. As soon as I could compass a private word with Mrs. Gross, I declared to her that it was grotesque. You mean the cruel charge? It doesn't live an instant. My dear woman, look at him. I assure you, miss, I do nothing else. What will you say, then? In answer to the letter? Nothing. And to his uncle? Nothing. And to the boy himself? Nothing. Then I'll stand by you. We'll see it out. We'll see it out. I gave her my hand to make it a vow. She held me there a moment. 
Would you mind, miss, if I used the freedom? To kiss me? No. I took the good creature in my arms and, after we had embraced like sisters, felt still more fortified and indignant. What I look back at with amazement is the situation I accepted. I had undertaken with my companion to see it out, and I was under a charm. I was lifted aloft on a great wave of infatuation and pity. I found it simple in my ignorance, my confusion, and perhaps my conceit, to assume that I could deal with a boy whose education for the world was all on the point of beginning. I am unable even to remember at this day what proposal I framed for the end of his holidays and the resumption of his studies. Lessons with me, indeed, that charming summer. But I now feel that for weeks the lessons must have been rather my own. I learned something, at first certainly, that had not been one of the teachings of my small, smothered life. Learned to be amused and even amusing, and not to think for the morrow. It was the first time, in a manner, that I had known space and air and freedom, all the music of summer and all the mystery of nature. And then there was the consideration, and consideration was sweet. Oh, it was a trap, not designed, but deep, to my imagination, to my delicacy, perhaps to my vanity, to whatever in me was most excitable. The best way to picture it all is to say that I was off my guard. They gave me so little trouble. They were of a gentleness so extraordinary. I used to speculate, but even this with a dim disconnectedness, as to how the rough future, for all futures are rough, would handle them and might bruise them. They had the bloom of health and happiness, and yet as if I had been in charge of a pair of little grandees, of princes of the blood for whom everything to be right would have to be enclosed and protected, the only form that, in my fancy, the after years could take for them was that of a romantic, a really royal extension of the garden and the park. It may be, of course, above all, that what suddenly broke into this gives the previous time a charm of stillness, that hush in which something gathers or crouches. The change was actually like the spring of a beast. In the first weeks the days were long. They often, at their finest, gave me what I used to call my own hour, the hour when, for my pupils, tea-time and bedtime having come and gone, I had, before my final retirement, a small interval alone. Much as I liked my companions, this hour was the thing in the day I liked most, and I liked it best of all when, as the light faded, or rather, I should say, the day lingered, and the last calls of the last birds sounded in a flushed sky from the old trees. I could take a turn into the grounds, and enjoy almost with a sense of property that amused and flattered me the beauty and dignity of the place. It was a pleasure at these moments to feel myself tranquil and justified, doubtless perhaps also to reflect that by my discretion, my quiet good sense and general high propriety, I was giving pleasure, if he ever thought of it, 
to the person to whose pressure I had responded. What I was doing was what he had earnestly hoped and directly asked of me, and that I could, after all, do it, proved even a greater joy than I had expected. I dare say I fancied myself, in short, a remarkable young woman, and took comfort in the face that this would more publicly appear. Well, I needed to be remarkable to offer a front to the remarkable things that presently gave their first sign. It was plump one afternoon, in the middle of my very hour. The children were tucked away, and I had come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with me in these wanderings was that it would be as charming as a charming story suddenly to meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of a path, and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. I only asked that he should know. And the only way to be sure he knew would be to see it, and the kind light of it in his handsome face. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was. When, on the first of these occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short on emerging from one of the plantations and coming into view of the house. What arrested me on the spot was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand there, but high up, beyond the lawn and at the very top of the tower to which, on that first morning, little Flora had conducted me. This tower was one of a pair. They flanked opposite ends of the house and were probably architectural absurdities from a romantic revival. I admired them, had fancies about them, especially when they loomed through the dusk. Yet it was not at such an elevation that the figure I had so often invoked seemed most in place. It produced in me, this figure in the clear twilight I remember, two distinct gasps of emotion, which were, sharply, the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had supposed. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman, and the figure that faced me was not the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had, on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, become a solitude. To me, at least, making my statement here, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took it in, what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again, as I write, the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost for the minute all its voice. But there was no other change in nature, unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the cleanness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. 
That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been, and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants more became intense. The great question, or one of these, is how long this moment lasted. Well, this matter of mine, think what you will of it, lasted while I caught at a dozen possibilities, none of which made a difference for the better that I could see in there having been in the house a person of whom I was in ignorance. It lasted while I just bridled a little with the sense that my office demanded that there should be no such ignorance and no such person. It lasted while this visitant, at all events, and there was a touch of the strange freedom as I remember in the sign of familiarity of his wearing no hat, seemed to fix me from his position with just the question, just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. We were too far apart to call to each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us, breaking the hush, would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was in one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him as I see the letters I form on this page. Then. Exactly after a minute, as if to add to the spectacle, he slowly changed his place. Passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me. And I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still markedly fixed me. He turned away. That was all I knew. Chapter 4 it was not that I didn't wait on this occasion for more, for I was rooted as deeply as I was shaken. Was there a secret at Bly, a mystery of Udolfo or an insane or unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement? I can't say how long I turned it over, or how long, in a confusion of curiosity and dread, I remained there. I only recall that when I re-entered the house, Darkness had quite closed in. Agitation in the interval certainly had held me and driven me, for I must, in circling about the place, have walked three miles. I became, in the hall, aware of meeting Mrs. Gross. This picture comes back to me in the general train. The impression, as I received it on my return, of the wide white panelled space, bright in the lamplight, and with its portraits and red carpet, and of the good surprised look of my friend, which immediately told me she had missed me. I had not suspected in advance that her comfortable face would pull me up, 
and I somehow measured the importance of what I had seen by my thus finding myself hesitate to mention it. Scarce anything in the whole history seems to me so odd as this fact that my real beginning of fear was one, as I may say, with the instinct of sparing my companion. On the spot accordingly, in the pleasant hall and with her eyes on me, I, for a reason that I couldn't then have phrased, achieved an inward revolution. Offered a vague pretext for my lateness, and with the plea of the beauty of the night and of the heavy dew and wet feet, went as soon as possible to my room. Here it was another affair. Here, for many days after, it was a queer affair enough. There were hours from day to day, or at least there were moments snatched even from clear duties, when I had to shut myself up to think. It was not so much yet that I was more nervous than I could bear to be, as that I was remarkably afraid of becoming so. For the truth I had now to turn over was simply and clearly the truth that I could arrive at no account whatever of the visitor with whom I had been so inexplicably, so intimately concerned. It took little time to see that I could sound without forms of inquiry and without exciting remark any domestic complications. The shock I had suffered must have sharpened all my senses. I felt sure at the end of three days, and as the result of mere closer attention, that I had not been practised upon by the servants, nor made the object of any game. Of whatever it was that I knew, nothing was known around me. There was but one sane inference. Someone had taken a liberty rather gross. That was what repeatedly I dipped into my room and locked the door to say to myself. We had been collectively subject to an intrusion. Some unscrupulous traveller, curious in old houses, had made his way in unobserved, enjoyed the prospect from the best point of view, and then stolen out as he came. If he had given me such a bold, hard stare... That was but part of his indiscretion. The good thing, after all, was that we should surely see no more of him. This was not so good a thing, I admit, as not to leave me to judge that what essentially made nothing else much signify was simply my charming work. My charming work was just my life with Miles and Flora, and through nothing could I so like it as through feeling that I could throw myself into it in trouble. The attraction of my small charges was a constant joy, leading me to wonder afresh at the vanity of my original fears. The distaste I had begun by entertaining for the probable grey prose of my office. There was to be no grey prose, it appeared, and no long grind so how could work not be charming that presented itself as daily beauty? It was all the romance of the nursery and the poetry of the schoolroom. I don't mean by this, of course, that we studied only fiction and verse. I mean I can express no otherwise the sort of interest my companions inspired. How can I describe that except by saying that instead of growing used to them, and it's a marvel for a governess, I call the sisterhood to witness... I made constant fresh discoveries. There was one direction, assuredly, in which these discoveries stopped, 
Deep obscurity continued to cover the region of the boy's conduct at school. It had been promptly given me, I have noted, to face that mystery without a pang. Perhaps even it would be nearer the truth to say that, without a word, he himself had cleared it up. He had made the whole charge absurd. My conclusion bloomed there, with the real rose flush of his innocence. He was only too fine and fair for the little, horrid, unclean school world, and he had paid a price for it. I reflected acutely that the sense of such differences, such superiorities of quality, always on the part of the majority, which could include even stupid, sordid headmasters, turn infallibly to the vindictive. Both the children had a gentleness. It was their only fault, and it never made Miles a muff, that kept them, how shall I express it, almost impersonal, and certainly quite unpunishable. They were like the cherubs of the anecdote, who had, morally at any rate, nothing to whack. I remember feeling with Miles, in especial, as if he had had, as it were, no history. We expect of a small child, a scant one, but there was in this beautiful little boy something extraordinarily sensitive, yet extraordinarily happy, that, more than in any creature of his age I have seen, struck me as beginning anew each day. He had never for a second suffered. I took this as a direct disproof of his having really been chastised. If he had been wicked, he would have caught it, and I should have caught it by the rebound. I should have found the trace. I found nothing at all, and he was therefore an angel. He never spoke of his school, never mentioned a comrade or a master, and I, for my part, was quite too much disgusted to allude to them. Of course, I was under the spell, and the wonderful part is that, even at the time, I perfectly knew I was. But I gave myself up to it. It was an antidote to any pain, and I had more pains than one. I was in receipt in these days of disturbing letters from home, where things were not going well. But with my children, what things in the world mattered? That was the question I used to put to my scrappy retirements. I was dazzled by their loveliness. There was a Sunday to get on, when it rained with such force and for so many hours that there could be no procession to church. I had arranged with Mrs Gross that, should the evening show improvement, we would attend together the late service. The rain happily stopped and I prepared for our walk, which, through the park and by the good road to the village, would be a matter of twenty minutes. Coming downstairs to meet my colleague in the hall, I remembered a pair of gloves that had required three stitches and that had received them, while I sat with the children at their tea, served on Sundays by exception in that cold, clean temple of mahogany and brass, the grown-up dining room. The gloves had been dropped there, and I turned in to recover them. The day was grey enough, but the afternoon light still lingered, and it enabled me, on crossing the threshold, not only to recognise on a chair near the wide window, then closed, the articles I wanted, but to become aware of a person on the other side of the window and looking straight in.
One step into the room had sufficed. My vision was instantaneous. It was all there. The person looking straight in was the person who had already appeared to me. He appeared thus again with, I won't say greater distinctness, for that was impossible, but with a nearness that represented a forward stride in our intercourse and made me, as I met him, catch my breath and turn cold. He was the same. He was the same and seen this time as he had been seen before, from the waist up, the window, though the dining room was on the ground floor, not going down to the terrace on which he stood. His face was close to the glass. He remained but a few seconds, long enough to convince me he also saw and recognised. But it was as if I had been looking at him for years, and had known him always. Something, however, happened this time that had not happened before. His stare into my face, through the glass and across the room, was as deep and hard as then. But it quitted me for a moment during which I could still watch it, see it fix successively several other things. On the spot there came to me the added shock of a certitude that it was not for me he had come there. He had come for someone else. The flash of this knowledge, for it was knowledge in the midst of dread, produced in me the most extraordinary effect. Started as I stood there a sudden vibration of duty and courage. I say courage because I was beyond all doubt already far gone. I bounded straight out of the door again, reached that of the house, got in an instant upon the drive, and passing along the terrace as fast as I could rush, turned a corner and came in full sight. But it was in sight of nothing now. My visitor had vanished. I stopped, I almost dropped, with the real relief of this. But I took in the whole scene. I gave him time to reappear. I call it time, but how long was it? I can't speak to the purpose today of the duration of these things. That kind of measure must have left me. They couldn't have lasted as they actually appeared to me to last. The terrace and the whole place, the lawn and the garden beyond it, all I could see of the park were empty, with a great emptiness. There were shrubberies and big trees, but I remember the clear assurance I felt that none of them concealed him. He was there or was not there. Not there if I didn't see him. I got hold of this then, instinctively, instead of returning as I had come, went to the window. It was confusedly present to me that I ought to place myself where he had stood. I did so. I applied my face to the pane and looked, as he had looked, into the room. As if at this moment to show me exactly what his range had been, Mrs. Gross came in from the hall. With this I had the full image of a repetition of what had already occurred. She saw me as I had seen my own visitant. She pulled up short as I had done. I gave her something of the shock that I had received. She turned white. And this made me ask myself if I had blanched as much. She stared, in short, 
and retreated on just my lines. And I knew she had then passed out and come round to me, and that I should presently meet her. I remained where I was, and while I waited I thought of more things than one. But there's only one I take space to mention. I wondered why she should be scared. Chapter 5 Oh, she let me know as soon as round the corner of the house, flushed and out of breath. What in the name of goodness is the matter? With me? Do I show it? Oh, you're as white as a sheet. You look awful. I considered. I put out my hand to her and she took it. I held her hard a little, liking to feel her close to me. There was a kind of support in the shy heave of her surprise. You came for me for church, of course. But I can't go. Has anything happened? Yes. Oh, you must know now. Do I look very strange? Through this window? Dreadful. Well, I've been frightened. And just what you saw from the dining room a minute ago was the effect of that. What I saw just before was much worse. What was it? An extraordinary man looking in. What extraordinary man? I haven't the least idea. Then where is he gone? I know still less. Have you seen him before? Yes, once. On the old tower. Do you mean he's a stranger? Oh, very much. Yet you didn't tell me? No, for reasons. But now that you've guessed... Oh, I I haven't guessed. How can I if you don't imagine? I don't in the very least. You've seen him nowhere but on the tower? And on this spot, just now. What was he doing on the tower? Only standing there and looking down at me. Was he a gentleman? No. Then nobody about the place, nobody from the village? Nobody, nobody. I didn't tell you, but I made sure. Oh, but if he isn't a gentleman... What is he? He's a horror. A horror? He's... God help me if I know what he is. Mrs Gross looked round once more. She fixed her eyes on the duskier distance, then, pulling herself together, turned to me with abrupt inconsequence. It's time we should be at church. Oh, I'm not fit for church. Won't it do you good? It won't do them. The children? I can't leave them now. You're afraid? I'm afraid of him. When was it? On the tower? About the middle of the month, at this same hour. Almost at dark. No, not nearly. I saw him as I see you. Then how did he get in? And how did he get out? I had no opportunity to ask him. This evening, you see, he has not been able to get in. He only peeps. I hope it will be confined to that. Go to church. Goodbye. I must watch. Do you fear for them? Don't you? Instead of answering, she came nearer to the window and, for a minute, applied her face to the glass. You see how he could see. She didn't move. How long was he here? Till I came out. I came to meet him. 
Mrs. Gross at last turned round, and there was still more in her face. I couldn't have come out. Neither could I. But I did come. I have my duty. So have I mine. What is he like? I've been dying to tell you, but he's like nobody. Nobody? He has no hat and red hair. Then seeing in her face that she already in this, with a deeper dismay, found a touch of the picture, I quickly added stroke to stroke. He has red hair, very red, close curling, and a pale face long in shape, with straight, good features and little whiskers that are as red as his hair. His eyebrows are somehow darker. His eyes are sharp, strange, awfully. But I only know clearly that they're rather small and very fixed. His mouth's wide and his lips are thin, and except for the little whiskers, he's quite clean-shaven. He gives me a sort of sense of looking like an actor. An actor? I've never seen one, but so I suppose them. He's tall, active, but never, no, never a gentleman. A gentleman? He? You know him, then? But he is handsome? Remarkably. And dressed? In somebody's clothes. They're smart, but they're not his own. They're the masters. You do know him? Quint. Quint? Peter Quint. His own man, his valet, when he was here. When the master was? He never wore his hat, but he did wear... Well, there were waistcoats missed. They were both here last year. Then the master went, and Quint was alone. Alone? Alone with us. In charge. And what became of him? He went too. Went where? God knows where. He died. Died? Yes. Mr. Quint is dead. Chapter 6 there had been this evening, after the revelation left me, for an hour so prostrate, there had been for either of us no attendance on any service, but a little service of tears and vows, of prayers and promises, a climax to the series of mutual challenges and pledges that had straightway ensued on our retreating together to the schoolroom and shutting ourselves up there to have everything out. She herself had seen nothing, not the shadow of a shadow, and nobody in the house but the governess was in the governess's plight. Yet she accepted, without directly impugning my sanity, the truth as I gave it to her, and ended by showing me on this ground an awe-stricken tenderness, an expression of the sense of my more than questionable privilege, of which the very breath has remained with me as that of the sweetest of human charities. What was settled between us accordingly that night was that we thought we might bear things together, and I was not even sure that, in spite of her exemption, it was she who had the best of the burden. 
I knew at this hour, I think, as well as I knew later, what I was capable of meeting to shelter my pupils. But it took me some time to be wholly sure of what my honest ally was prepared for, to keep terms with so compromising a contract. I was strange company enough, quite as strange as the company I received, but as I trace over what we went through, I see how much common ground we must have found in the one idea that, by good fortune, could steady us. It was the idea that led me straight out of the inner chamber of my dread. I could take the air in the court at least, and there Mrs Gross could join me. Perfectly can I recall now the particular way strength came to me before we separated for the night. We had gone over and over every feature of what I had seen. He was looking for someone else, you say? Someone who was not you? He was looking for little Miles. That's whom he was looking for. But how do you know? I know. I know. I know. And you know, my dear. What if he should see him? Little Miles? That's what he wants. The child? Oh, heaven forbid. The man. He wants to appear to them. That he might was an awful conception, and yet somehow I could keep it at bay. I had an absolute certainty that I should see again what I had already seen, but something within me said that by offering myself bravely as the sole subject of such experience, by accepting, by inviting, by surmounting it all, I should serve as an expiatory victim and guard the tranquillity of my companions. The children in especial, I should thus fence about and absolutely save. I recall one of the last things I said that night to Mrs Gross. It does strike me that my pupils have never mentioned... His having been here and the time they were with him. The time they were with him and his name, his presence, his history in any way. Oh, the little lady doesn't remember. She never heard or knew. The circumstances of his death? Perhaps not. But Miles would remember... Miles would know. Oh, don't try him. But don't be afraid. It is rather odd. That he has never spoken of him? Never by the least illusion. And you tell me they were great friends? Oh, it wasn't him. It was Quint's own fancy. To play with him. I, I mean, to spoil him. Quint was much too free. Too free with my boy? Too free with everyone. I forbore for the moment to analyse this description further than by the reflection that a part of it applied to several of the members of the household, of the half-dozen maids and men who were still of our small colony. It was midnight when she had her hand on the schoolroom door to take leave, I have it from you then, for it's of great importance, that he was definitely and admittedly bad. Oh, not admittedly. I knew it, but the master didn't. And you never told him? Well, he didn't like tale-bearing. He hated complaints. He was 
terribly short with anything of that kind. And if people were all right to him... I promised you I would have told. I dare say I was wrong, but really, I was afraid. Afraid of what? Of things that man could do. Quint was so clever. He was so deep. You weren't afraid of anything else? Not of his effect? His effect? On innocent little precious lives. They were in your charge. No, they were not in mine. The master believed in him and placed him here because he was supposed not to be well in the country air, so good for him. So he had everything to say. Yes, even about them. Them? That creature? And you could bear it? No, I couldn't. And I can't now. And the poor woman burst into tears. A rigid control from the next day was, as I have said, to follow them. Yet how often and how passionately, for a week, we came back together to the subject. Much as we had discussed it that Sunday night, I was, in the immediate later hours and especial, for it may be imagined whether I slept, still haunted with the shadow of something she had not told me. I myself had kept back nothing, but there was a word Mrs. Gross had kept back. I was sure that this was not from a failure of frankness, but because on every side there were fears. It seemed to me indeed in retrospect that by the time the morrow's sun was high, I had restlessly read into the fact before us almost all the meaning they were to receive from subsequent and more cruel occurrences. What they gave me above all was just the sinister figure of the living man, the dead one would keep a while, and of the months he had continuously passed at Bly, which added up, made a formidable stretch. The limit of this evil time had arrived only when, on the dawn of a winter's morning, Peter Quint was found, by a labourer going to early work, stone dead on the road from the village. A catastrophe explained, by a visible wound to his head, such a wound as might have been produced by a fatal slip in the dark, and after leaving the public house on the steepish icy slope, a wrong path altogether, at the bottom of which he lay. The icy slope, the turn mistaken at night and in liquor, accounted for much. Practically, in the end and after the inquest and boundless chatter, for everything. But there had been matters in his life, strange passages and perils, secret disorders, vices more than suspected, that would have accounted for a good deal more. I scarce know how to put my story into words that shall be a credible picture of my state of mind, but I was in these days literally able to find a joy in the extraordinary flight of heroism the occasion demanded of me. I now saw that I had been asked for a service admirable and difficult, and there would be a greatness in letting it be seen, oh, in the right quarter, that I could succeed where many another girl might have failed. It was an immense help to me, I confess I rather applaud myself as I look back, that I saw my service so strongly and so simply. I was there to protect 
and defend the little creatures in the world the most bereaved and the most lovable, the appeal of whose helplessness had suddenly become only too explicit, a deep, constant ache of one's own committed heart. We were cut off, really, together. We were united in our danger. They had nothing but me, and I, well, I had them. It was, in short, a magnificent chance. This chance presented itself to me in an image richly material. I was a screen. I was to stand before them. The more I saw, the less they would. I began to watch them in stifled suspense, a disguised excitement that might well, had it continued too long, have turned to something like madness. What saved me, as I now see, was that it turned to something else altogether. It didn't last as suspense. It was superseded by horrible proofs. Proofs, I say, yes, from the moment I really took hold. This moment dated from an afternoon hour that I happened to spend in the grounds with the younger of my pupils alone. We had left Miles indoors on the red cushion of a deep window seat. He had wished to finish a book. His sister, on the contrary, had been alert to come out, and I strolled with her half an hour, seeking the shade, for the sun was still high and the day exceptionally warm. I was aware afresh with her, as we went, of how, like her brother, she contrived. It was the charming thing in both children, to let me alone without appearing to drop me, and to accompany me without appearing to surround. My attention to them all really went to seeing them amuse themselves immensely without me. This was a spectacle they seemed actively to prepare, and that engaged me as an active admirer. I walked in a world of their invention. On this occasion, I only remember that I was something very important and very quiet in her game, and that Flora was playing very hard. We were on the edge of the lake. Suddenly, in these circumstances, I became aware that on the other side, we had an interested spectator. The way this knowledge gathered in me was the strangest thing in the world. I had sat down with a piece of work on the old stone bench which overlooked the pond, and in this position I began to take in with certitude, and yet without direct vision, the presence, at a distance, of a third person. The old trees, the thick shrubbery, made a great and pleasant shade, but it was all suffused with the brightness of the hot, still hour. There was no ambiguity in anything, none whatever, at, at least in the conviction I, from one moment to another, found myself forming, as to what I should see straight before me and across the lake as a consequence of raising my eyes. They were attached at this juncture to the stitching in which I was engaged, and I can feel once more the spasm of my effort not to move them till I should so have steadied myself as to be able to make up my mind what to do. There was an alien object in view, a figure whose right of presence I instantly, passionately questioned. I recollect counting over perfectly the possibilities, reminding myself that nothing was more natural, for instance, 
than the appearance of one of the men about the place, or even of a messenger, a postman, or a tradesman's boy from the village. Nothing was more natural than that these things should be the other things that they absolutely were not. Of the positive identity of the apparition, I would assure myself as soon as the small clock of my courage should have ticked out the right second. Meanwhile, with an effort that was already sharp enough, I transferred my eyes straight to little Flora, who at the moment was about ten yards away. My heart had stood still for an instant, with the wonder and terror of the question whether she too would see. And I held my breath while I waited for what a cry from her, what some sudden innocent sign either of interest or of alarm would tell me. I waited, but nothing came. Then I was determined by a sense that within a minute, all sounds from her had previously dropped and in the second by the circumstance that she had in her play turned her back to the water. This was her attitude when I at last looked at her. She had picked up a small flat piece of wood which happened to have in it a little hole that had evidently suggested to her the idea of sticking in another fragment that might figure as a mast and make the thing a boat. This second morsel, as I watched her, she was very markedly and intently attempting to tighten in its place. My apprehension of what she was doing sustained me so that after some seconds I felt I was ready for more. Then I again shifted my eyes. I faced what I had to face. Thank you for listening to MTC Audio Lab. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James was directed by Sarah Goods, with performances by Lawrence Boxall, Mark Downey, Robert Menzies, and Catherine Tonkin. Sound design, engineering, and theme music by Clements Williams. Produced by the team at MTC. Enjoyed this episode? Find more Audio Lab episodes or learn how you can support Melbourne's home of theatre at mtc.com.au.